Welcome back for chapter one, part two. So what does educational psychology and research have to do with teachers in the classroom? A lot, actually. The field of psychology as we know it today is about 150 years old, though discussions on the nature of learning and teaching have been going on for thousands of years, like Socrates, Plato. According to the author, educational psychologists do research on learning and teaching and at the same time work to improve educational policy and practice. This field looks at four components and how they interact with each other, the teacher, the student, the content, and the setting. We can use knowledge gained from studies in educational psychology to guide instruction and improve our teaching practice. The issue with a field like education, though, is that there's a lot of nuance to certain issues, and the science of learning and development isn't as cut and dry as something like chemistry. We also have to deal with parents, administrators, lawmakers, and community members who all have their own deeply held beliefs about education and child development based on their own experiences and biases. How often have you heard, well, when I was in school, we did XYZ and I turned out just fine. So our goal is to learn how to break through anecdotal evidence and outdated practices using research and knowledge of how kids learn and grow. Often things that seem like common sense or practices that are used frequently in the classroom aren't supported in research studies. And to be able to utilize research and stay up to date with education best practices, we need to know how to utilize research studies and weed through all the information that is out there. A great example that's been in the news lately is the science of reading versus the whole language movement. Uh, Irene Fountas and Gay Supinel and Lucy Calkins have faced growing criticism for their popular yet phonics light reading programs. These programs are widely used, but their methods prioritize whole language learning, which emphasizes context clues and picture cues over explicit systematic phonics instruction. Research now highlights some shortcomings uh, in Fountas and Pinnell's text leveling system and Calkins' units of study for lacking sufficient phonics instruction. If you remember, uh, if you're young enough to have been in school when you have the leveling uh, books where you say, you know, I'm a level four or whatever, or level G, that's Fountas uh, and Minnell. Their programs, which were once considered the gold standard, are now facing scrutiny and reevaluation due to their potential to leave some students struggling with essential phonics skills. The, so the science of reading champions systematic phonics as the key to unlocking reading success. It recognizes two crucial steps to coding, which is sounding out words, and comprehension, which is understanding meaning. Research backs this approach. We've got brain scans that show phonics activates key reading areas. Long-term studies prove its effectiveness and intervention programs demonstrate its ability to boost struggling readers. But even though we had this data, we still continue to use the Fountas and Pinnell and Calkins programs across the world. But we now know that science of reading is an educational best practice due to the work of educational researchers and data. So in order to read and understand research, we need to understand some of the common terminology used in research literature. There are two main types of research studies, descriptive and experimental. Descriptive research is just that. It describes what's going on without the researchers trying to impact the subjects of the study. Experimental research focuses on setting up a scenario and then manipulating variables in order to study cause and effect. In educational research, you'll hear the word correlation, which is a link between two variables. We use correlation numbers to measure the link between two things, like weight and height. These numbers range from negative one to one, with closer values to either end, meaning a stronger connection. So a negative one would be a strong negative correlation. A positive one would be a strong positive correlation. Positive correlation means both things rise or fall together. More weight, more height. Well, negative correlation means that one goes up as the other goes down. So if you buy cheaper tickets for a concert, you're further away from the stage. So kind of backwards from what you would assume, positive doesn't mean that they both go up and negative doesn't mean they both go down. Positive is that they go in the same direction. Negative means that they go in opposite direction. But remember, correlation doesn't mean that one thing causes the other. Correlation does not equal causation. And educational psychologists use these connections to make informed guesses about classroom behavior. Educational research goes beyond just observing and describing. Experimentation allows researchers to study cause and effect by introducing changes and then observing those results. 
They create comparable groups of participants, often by randomly assigning them. And then in experiments, researchers change something for one group, which is the treatment group, and then compare those results to another group, which is the control group. Quasi-experiments are similar, but participants are not randomly assigned to groups. And this is common in education because we often have to use the groups available to us, such as classes in a school or college students who volunteer for a study. Here's an example of experimental research. Researchers might ask if training teachers in a specific spelling method improves student spelling, which would be cause and effect. They would create groups of teachers and students, give the treatment group training, and then compare the spelling improvement of both groups. If the improvement in the treatment group is statistically significant, it means the training has likely caused the improvement. Experimentation and quasi-experiments help us to understand cause and effect in education, which is going beyond just observing correlations. We'll encounter several different types of studies over the course of the semester. One common study design involves interviewing participants, which is otherwise known as the clinical interview. In this type of experiment, researchers will just ask the same questions of each participant and then determine common threads or codes between those responses. Researchers can also use case studies, where instead of randomly selecting participants, they deliberately choose a small sample and then study that sample in depth. So this could be a specific person, such as a student with a ADHD in an after-school program, or a group of people such as a class of students. There are several other types of study designs, such as ABAB and ethnography, that the text goes into in a little more detail if you're interested in looking at that more. The last thing that I want to cover regarding educational research is the types of research data that is collected during both descriptive and experimental studies. These are qualitative and quantitative. Think about learning about students. Numbers can tell us how many struggle with math, which is quantitative. While if a student says, I feel lost, reveals their unique experience. So that's qualitative. So quantitative data is countable. Grades, attendance, survey scores. Qualitative data is descriptive. Those are interviews, observations, open-ended questions. One paints sort of a big picture with numbers, and the other lets us step into someone else's shoes with the stories that they tell us. And putting those together gives us a much richer picture of education. Um, and when we do put those together, we call that mixed methods. Both NCLB and ESSA require that practitioners use evidence-based research to support any interventions and programs that receive federal funding. There is some debate, however, about whether or not scientific peer-reviewed studies are the end-all be-all for ways to support educational reform. And when I say peer-reviewed, I mean that researchers have conducted a study, written a paper, and then submitted it and had other people, other practitioners in the field read over it and kind of sign off that it is scientifically significant. But going back to my previous point, sometimes those fancy studies aren't everything that we need or the only thing that we need to decide what to do in the classroom. Teachers make changes every day based on what they know about their students. They don't need to carefully track every interaction and data point or submit to a fancy journal to know that Demetrius needs to be accelerated in math and that they want to try something new with the red group's phonics time. In practice, teachers often use what we call action research, which is when we focus on a problem and try an intervention to fix it. Teachers do this constantly. Is it always necessary to use strict evidence-based practices in the classroom? Well, we'll look at this more closely as the semester goes on. In addition to specific studies and experiments, educators and policymakers rely on educational theories to help guide instruction and programming. So let's dive into what a theory means a little more. In education, there are so many variables, different students, teachers, tasks, settings, plus humans are complicated. Researchers focus on smaller pieces, so studying one or two things at a time. When lots of studies point to the same idea, we piece together a principle, like a connection between a teaching strategy and student achievement. Theories are like big picture maps that help us understand these connections. So we tend to think like, oh, it's just a theory. That doesn't mean that it's a guess. 
Think of it more like a bunch of ideas explaining why things happen and how to predict what might happen next. We have theories for language development, goal setting, even how we learn. These theories guide our research and practice. We test them by asking questions, gathering data. If the results fit the theory, great. If not, the theory gets tweaked or even tossed out. It's a constant back and forth, always getting more accurate. And going back to my example earlier of whole language versus science of reading, we thought for years that whole language was the right way to do things. We found out that that was not the case. Principles are more like practical tools for specific problems. But theories offer like a wider lens. They help us see problems differently, giving us tools to tackle new situations and predict what might work. So here's an example. A principle would be that teachers should provide specific and timely feedback because it improves student learning. This principle is well established through numerous research studies. Effective feedback goes beyond simply saying good job or wrong answer. It should pinpoint strengths and weaknesses, explain why something is correct or incorrect, and then suggest steps for improvement. A theory that supports this principle is Vygotsky's Zone of Proximal Development, or ZPD, which proposes that learning happens optimally when someone is challenged slightly beyond their current abilities, where they need some support from someone more knowledgeable, like a teacher. And we'll get into ZPD more in depth later. This is just an example. So principles are actionable guidelines based on research, so giving feedback, while theories provide the underlying explanation for why those principles work, which is students need to be challenged. So this semester, we will unpack the best evidence-based practices of development, learning, motivation, and teaching. We'll see different perspectives because no one theory has all the answers. And, you know, many roads lead to Rome. Not every teacher is going to teach the same way. They all have their different style and different backgrounds that they're bringing to it as well. But those are all pieces of this puzzle, and it helps us understand the amazing complexities of teaching and learning. So to summarize, Chapter 1, Part 2, Educational Psychology helps teachers by understanding how students learn best, improving teaching practices with research-based methods, and debunking common myths and outdated practices. Research methods that we should know are the types of studies, which is descriptive, observing trends, and experimental, which is testing cause and effect. Correlation, which is a link between things, but not necessarily causing them. Uh, qualitative is descriptive data. Quantitative is numerical data. Research informs evidence-based practices, so teachers use research to choose effective interventions and programs. Both scientific studies and teacher intuition play a role. We'll discuss the debate about relying solely on evidence-based practices as we continue through the semester. Educational theories explain why things work. Uh, theories are bigger than isolated principles. They connect ideas. So Vygotsky's ZPD explains how optimal learning happens with support. We'll explore various theories about development, learning, motivation, and teaching. And this semester, we'll learn about the best evidence-based theories in education, analyze different perspectives and understand their limitations, and gain tools to navigate the complexities of teaching and learning. So that is it for Chapter 1, Part 2. Hope you guys have a great week, and I will see you in class. Mm -hmm.